given us is something that we don't deserve, but you sustain. Lord, you even went to the cross so that we could experience this thing called life forever. Lord, we thank you that it's in your good purpose to fill life on this earth with meaning, with encounters with you, um, or with experiences of being drawn by your Holy Spirit closer to the heart of God. Lord, you have been good to us. As we reflect on life this morning, we just think about how good you've been to us in our lives. Even in the hardships, even in the pain, you've sustained us and you've been with us. So we thank you, Lord. God, today we want a deeper appreciation of what you've given to us. And we especially want to be a voice uh, for those who are vulnerable. And so, Lord, we just pray that you'd empower us by your spirit. Lord, we just say, have freedom in this place to stir our hearts to action this morning, to affirm our identity in you. But Lord, would you reign over this time as we approach your word together and we submit ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I know many of you know who I am, as was just demonstrated. Someone said my name back there. Uh, but my name is Joel Repic. If you don't know me, I'm a lead pastor here at Crestmont. And today, again, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Amos. So you can turn there um, or get there on your phone. Um, it will also be on the screen behind me. And just as you do, I want to remind you of a few things. This is the last week of our corporate fast together. Uh, this time next week will be the last day of the fast. It will end on the evening of the 28th. And I want to say I've just so enjoyed this time with you. I've, I've been able to get together with many of you and pray over the last couple weeks. I just think this has been a really profitable time for us together. So I want to thank you for participating. And I think it was said a couple weeks ago, even if you didn't participate in the fast, you still get to benefit from what God did among us, because this is how it works in a family, right? The blessing that we receive is the blessing for everybody, right? So my prayer as we head into this last week, and I'm praying for all of you as, as we do, my prayer is that uh, you experience the blessing of what God has done among us. But we do want to let you know what our schedule for prayer is for this last week. So I think we have it up on the screen, but the last Week of the fast will look like this. We'll get together for prayer uh, this Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. in the prayer room. Uh, this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, we'll gather for prayer. Um, originally, it was our plan to join with another church for that prayer gathering. Their calendar has changed, so we're going to have to postpone doing that until another time. So this Wednesday at 7, we'll just get together in the prayer room here. It'll be a great time together. And then normally, the last Sunday of the night, the last Sunday night of the month, uh, we don't have our men's gathering, women's gathering, and children and youth programs. We gather for prayer anyway. And as it turns out, that's the last night of the fast. So at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sunday, we're going to gather in the prayer room for worship and prayer. And I think it's a great way to end the fast together. Uh, so we'd love it if you came out for that as well. Um, I would love the opportunity to get to know you if I don't, and one opportunity for that will be happening right after the service today. On the other side of the back wall here in the Crestmont Cafe, 
we'll have a new members class. Uh, normally, we hold three classes in rotation, but today we're doing them all at once. Uh, so it's a special deal. You should join in. If you, three for the price of one. So if you, if, uh, you have not uh, come into membership here at Crestmont and you want to, you want to identify Crestmont as your home church, please join me in the cafe immediately following the service. We'll have some snacks for you. Uh, we didn't have anybody sign up requesting for child care. So we don't have child care available today because we didn't see a need for it. Um, but we encourage you to, to join us uh, right after the service. And so I hope, I hope that you will. Well, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Over the years at Crestmont, uh, we've taken one Sunday in January in conjunction with MLK Day to remember as Justice Sunday. We did that last week. And today is Sanctity of Life Sun- Sunday, remembering um, the value that God has placed on human life. And I mentioned last week, I'm doing something that I don't know that I've ever done in the years that I've preached, and it's to preach on the same passage for two Sundays in a row. So last week, I preached on Amos chapters 1 and 2. We're going to do the same again today, and I'm going to read it here in just a little bit. So you might be wondering, what's this thing called sanctity of life? What do we mean by sanctity of life? Well, that word sanctity If you look it up in the dictionary, it just means that something is in a state of being holy or sacred or of ultimate importance. And this is something that Christians believe that human life is sacred and holy. And we believe it not just because it's some doctrine we came up with, but because all throughout Scripture, again and again and again, God affirms the dignity and the value of human life. He does it right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.27, it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's so much we could say about what it means to be created in the image of God. But for now, let me say this, that human beings are the only things that God created that bear this designation. And no other part of the creation, it, it, the rest of the creation is good, But no other part of the creation was created in the image of God. It's only people who've been created in the image of God. And this means a lot of things for us. There's a lot of implications for that. But one thing it definitely means is that God in his sovereign will has decided that human life is special. That it's something that's to be valued, that it's something that he affirms and calls sacred. And if you want to really know what God thinks about human life, then consider this, that Jesus came as one of us and gave up his life so that we could have life forever. And it's an amazing thing, church, because we're the only part of the creation that he did that for. You know, have you ever thought about this? Even angels, right? The Bible talks about fallen angels. We identify them as demons. Do you know there's no redemption for angels? For whatever reason, the Bible never gives any indication that it's possible for a fallen angel to be redeemed. In their fallen state, they are forever fallen. But humankind is different. Why? Well, to say it bluntly, it's because he loves us more. What are we? that God has placed that kind of value on us. That he loves us to that degree. I was just with a friend yesterday praying, and I read in 1 Peter where it says that angels, like the good ones, look at how God has treated us with love and mercy and dignity, and they wonder at it. 
they wonder why God has done this or ordered it. They think it's an amazing thing that God has made human beings who often reject him, turn away from him, all this stuff. But God has made human beings the object of his love. Well, Amos has a lot to say about human life. And I'm not going to repeat everything that I said last week. If you want some more background on the book of Amos, I'd encourage you to listen to my sermon from last week. It's on the app. Wait until after the service to listen to last week's sermon. That might be confusing, all right? But just a refresher, if you weren't here, and if you weren't here last week to bring you up to speed, Amos is an Old Testament prophet prophesying in the 8th century B.C., hundreds of years before Jesus was born. By this point in Israel's history, uh, the nation has split into two. There's a northern kingdom that's most commonly referred to as Israel, a southern kingdom that's most commonly referred to as Judah, Amos is from Judah, but he's been sent by God into the northern kingdom to preach and to prophesy during the reign of a king named Jeroboam II. I said this last week, but the ancient world, you know, there's these northern and southern kingdoms that's surrounded by all of these other nations. The ancient world is a treacherous, violent place where nations are constantly going to war against one another. As a matter of fact, the northern kingdom of Israel had done some warfare themselves and as a result had expanded their borders. And this set in motion a whole um, lot of social change. Uh, some people became very prosperous while other portions of the population were left behind. We were talking about that last week on Justice Sunday. Um, but today, we're going to look mainly at what God has to say to the nations that surround Israel. We talked last week about how God is concerned for the poor, and he's concerned not just for individual sin, but also for sin that's in the system. We call that systemic sin, sin that's in the atmosphere, so to speak, and affects people as a result. Now, we're going to read all of Amos 1 and a few verses into chapter 2, but before I do, let me just identify you a repetitive pattern that Amos uses when he's talking to these nations. There's a five-part pattern, and you're going to see it over and over again. It might help you make some sense of what we're reading. First of all, Amos announces that what he's saying is from God. His bold claim is that these aren't his own words. As a matter of fact, we see at the beginning of Amos that Amos had a vision or a series of visions that gave him the information. His visions are from God, and he's delivering the message from God to these nations. Next, he identifies the guilty party. He names either a city or a nation that is guilty before God. Then he makes the very startling statement that the time for judgment has come. It's too late to turn back. God will not relent from sending his judgment. Then he identifies the crime that's been committed, so he gets specific. And then in all of these instances, he depicts God's punishment as fire. In the ancient world, when a conquering king conquered another city, they would often burn the palace and the city, and that's the imagery that's being used for God as a conquering king. Um, so let's look at this together. I'm not going to have you stand uh, because I'm going to give some commentary again as we go through the passage, and it's a longer passage, but it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's begin in Amos 1.1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. 
The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. This is the first nation he's talking to. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. The picture here, in agricultural threshing in the ancient world, they would use a board and they would put iron teeth on the bottom of it and you would just rake it over you know, whatever crop you were threshing. And so the picture here is of the indiscriminate killing of an entire population of people. At some point, Damascus came into this other region, Gilead, and they went to war, but more than that, they just slaughtered a whole community of people, didn't care who was in their way, just killed them. Verse 4, I will send fire on the house of Haziel, they will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Gaza. So this is the next nation. Even for four, I will not relent because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. They had, in, in, they had invaded neighboring nations and took captive whole communities, not sparing anyone, and sold them as slaves to Edom. Edom at this time uh, was known for its copper mines, or mining copper out of the earth, and so they were in great need of slave labor. And so this is what Gaza had done. They had sold whole populations of people into slavery. So God says in verse 8, I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom. She did the same thing that Gaza did, invaded other countries, took whole communities captive and sold them to the copper mines in Edom disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. So we learn something else here, that they had broken some kind of treaty with a neighboring nation or other nations and ended up hurting the nation that they were supposed to be in partnership with. So God says in verse 10, I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent because he pursued his brother with a sword. Now, that language of brother makes us think that the crime here was actually committed against Israel. You might remember, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that the Edomites were descendants of Esau. That is to say, they were descendants of Abraham as well as the Israelites. So they're like distant cousins. And it seems that the prophecy is saying, you attacked your own brothers. You attacked your own family. We're supposed to be in the same family, but you attacked this neighboring nation, and slaughtered the women of the land, meaning that they killed not only soldiers, but defenseless people as well. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked, he went way beyond, Edom went way beyond just conquering the surrounding nations. Their anger was unchecked and they slaughtered and slaughtered and slaughtered until there was nothing less. So God says, I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortresses of Basra. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Ammon. Even for four, I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. For most nations in the ancient world, it would have been considered an abomination, even in war, to kill pregnant women, to kill them and their unborn children. 
But Ammon commits this. In order to extend their borders, they kill pregnant women and their unborn. So God says in verse 14, I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle. Amid violent winds on a stormy day, her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent, because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. What's in view here is the desecration of a corpse, particularly the king of Edom. He had died, and we don't know what happened, but it seems that Moab dug up you know, his corpse, or after he had been killed in war, and desecrated it, burned it, treated it in a disrespectful way. So it says, I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriath. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of a trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. <sighs> you still with me? All right. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Judah. Even for four, I will not relent. So now God is talking to the southern kingdom, his people. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord, have not kept his decrees, because they've been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. So their crime is that they broke the law of God. We know from the other prophets that they broke the law of God in similar ways as the northern kingdom did, which we explored last week. They trampled on the heads of the poor. They denied justice to the oppressed. Um, and did not care for their own, but they also began to worship other gods, which is idolatry. So God says in verse 5, I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. And lastly, this is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel. Even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. We talked last week about how it became easy to buy the poor even by legal means in Israel. We talked about that last week. So people don't even think they're doing anything wrong, but they're utterly trampling on the rights of the poor. Verse 7, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, deny justice to the oppressed. They had lost a heart attitude that cared about the vulnerable in society. All right, next, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. This has more to do than just with sexual immorality. It has to do with using slaves, not just for economic benefit, but for pleasure as well. So female slaves are being used for pleasure in the houses of Israel. Verse 8, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. We said last week that this has to do with extracting fines, even by legal means, from the poor so that the elite in society are able to live in pleasure. All right? So, in summary, just track with me here for another second. In summary, let's look at this list of national crimes. Damascus has killed a whole population indiscriminately. Gaza has sold whole communities into slavery. Tyre has broken a treaty, and it's probably connected, that has also led them to sell whole communities into slavery for profit. Edom has killed their own brothers, their own family, and the defenseless. They've had unchecked violence. Ammon has killed pregnant women and their unborn children. Moab has desecrated the corpse of Edom's king. And here, there's a shift. I just want you to notice this. Up until this point on the list, these are all war crimes, right? 
These are all war crimes that have to do with slaughtering people, selling them into slavery. If you're familiar with modern day politics, you may have heard of like the Geneva Conventions that were drafted after World War II that are supposed to govern rules of war between nations, right? Now they get broken all the time, but they're supposed to govern like fighting fairly between nations in the terrible event of war. And there's some things that nations around the world have said, look, even if nations go to war, these certain ways of doing things in war are just detestable. It's just immoral, and we can't agree to that as a community of nations, all right? So that's kind of the language that Amos is using here. But then Judah and Israel, I mentioned this last week, there's no war crimes mentioned. These aren't war crimes. These are economic crimes. They're crimes of mistreating their own, of leaving behind some of their own people, right? But God doesn't really make a distinction. I just want you to keep that in mind. He puts these in the same category and threatens the same kind of punishment on Judah and Israel as he does on these nations that have committed these terrible war crimes. So let me just make some points out of Amos 1 and 2 before we make this really practical for us this morning. First point out of Amos, God is concerned for human life, period. This is demonstrated so well in what we just read. I mentioned this last week, but it was the normal function of prophets in the ancient world to prophesy only in favor of their own king, right? To prophesy only in favor of the nation that they were, that they were from. Should they always had a word from the Lord, but as it turns out, it seemed like God was always on their side, Right? That God was against all of the other nations, and he was for the nation that the prophet was from, right? Which means that when these nations went to war, all of them had prophets, and they were all saying, our God is saying, we're going to win. Well, don't miss how radical it is what Amos does in the 8th century B.C., because he's saying that God is not just upset that some Israelites got killed. That's part of it, right? The Edomites... Broke, uh, you know, went against their own brothers, and it looks like they killed and enslaved their own brothers, the Israelites. But as far as we know, it seems like many of these other crimes were committed against other pagan nations. That is, nations that were not worshiping the one true God, did not believe in the God of Israel, and God is concerned for them as well. To such a degree that God finds it abominable that a corpse has been desecrated in a nation that doesn't even worship him. What is human life? That God is so concerned, not just about a living human being, but also how the dead are treated. Because God knows that how we treat the dead communicates something about how we value the living, right? And so he's concerned even about this. If you take it all together, God is saying in this passage that he's concerned for men, women, children, soldiers, civilians, the unborn, mothers, poor Israelites, pagans, and even the body of a dead king. That's radical in the day in which Amos lives. God is concerned about all of these groups of people, and he's so concerned about it, he even threatens to avenge the deaths of people who don't even follow him. Isn't that interesting? Now, that raises another question. I'm not going to get to fully answer this morning, but you might say, how could God be so concerned about human life and there's all this language threatening death? 
You know, there's all this language of him saying he's going to avenge and bring fire and all of this. And I'm really not going to have time to give you a really good, well-rounded answer to that this morning. But here's just two things for you to chew on. First of all, he's God. And scripture says that actually the state of the situation is we all deserve death because we've rebelled against him. That's all we deserve, friends, is death. Anything that we experience beyond immediate death and judgment is his grace, whether we follow him or not. And it's God alone who is a righteous judge. You may need to wrestle with the fact, like, what do you think about God's character? See, if God is righteous, and he's the only one who sees the whole picture, who knows how to judge nations perfectly, from his vantage point, He's the one who's allowed to execute judgment. And I would say he has not given that right to any human being to execute the judgment of death on somebody apart from his authority. All right? So life and death are in his hands. It belongs to him. And secondly, I would just say this, that since the time the first human beings fell into sin, we call that the fall, It wasn't long after that that people began to kill each other. You may be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, brothers in the book of Genesis who kill each other. And human history since then has been filled with violence. And the Bible is very honest with that. And God, rather than just wiping out the whole earth and obliterating us, which in many ways would have been easier, what God chose to do was work inside human messiness to accomplish his will And this sometimes means, even with his people Israel, he's working within war. Now, that's not a full answer, but that's something for you to think about. My second point out of the passage is that God talks to his people on the basis of his revealed law, but he talks to pagan nations on the basis of what I'm calling universal law. Now, put your thinking caps on so you can track with this with me this morning. Ask yourself the question, on what basis does God address these pagan nations and tell them that what they're doing is wrong? They don't have God's law. They don't worship the one true God. They're not opening their Bibles and seeing that they're disobeying some command. So what is it that they have broken? And this is something that scholars have debated about. There's a bunch of different like theories surrounding this passage. But I just want to offer to you this morning That when God talks to his own people, Israel and Judah, he's talking to them like people who are in the know. See, they know more of God's will. It's been revealed to them in the word. They know more of God's law. God appeared to his people right right after he brought them out of Egypt as slaves. He appeared to them and he gave them the law. And so he talks to them with a higher standard because they know more, right? But when he talks to the pagan nations... He never appeals to Scripture. He never appeals to the Old Testament law. He's basically saying, you guys know this is wrong, and you just know it in your hearts, and you've broken this anyway, and you've done the wrong thing. The Apostle Paul says something like this. I think I forgot to put this on the screen, but the Apostle Paul says something like this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, when he says that Gentiles, in other words, those who don't, you know, aren't reading their Bibles, they don't know about the one true God, who do not have the law do by nature the things required of the law because the law has been written on their hearts. See, there's a lot of differences in morality between cultures and groups of people, but there's some common threads that we generally find in most nations around the world, ripping the unborn out of women in war is considered wrong, right? Right? 
And not because people are quoting chapter and verse, but because it just offends the human conscience. God has just made it so that we can perceive that some things are right and wrong in the world. This is what the founders of our nation meant when they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. They're saying, you don't need a chapter and verse for this. The truth that all people are created equal, no matter how the founding fathers fell from that, that standard they were trying to reach, still, the truth is there. All people are created equal, and this is self-evident. It's just built into the creation. We ought to know it and be able to recognize it. And what this all means is that when God talks to his people, when he talks to Israel and Judah, they aren't less guilty because it seems like they committed lesser crimes. They're more guilty because they knew more. And I think that should be sobering for us on a Sanctity of Life Sunday. Lastly, my last point about Amos, God refuses to allow his people to ignore their own disregard for human life. I mentioned this last week, but when Amos starts to prophesy, he prophesies to the pagan nations. Then he gets closer when he starts prophesying to Edom and Ammon, these are like distant cousins of Israel. And then he prophesies to the southern kingdom. And Israel at this period of time was so sure that God was on their side that they would have been amening this all the way. Let Judah have it, scum of the earth Judah. Let our cousins have it. They're annoying anyway. Let those pagan nations have it. Look at the terrible things that they do in war. And then God prophesies to his own people Israel. The prophet does it in this order on purpose because he's trying to raise up in them their hatred of other nations and their self-righteousness so that when God starts to talk to them about their own problems, they realize their hypocrisy. So here's some things I want to tell us on Sanctity of Life Sunday about what we can do because that's always the question is what is God asking us to do? First of all, I want to start here. Let God affirm the value of your life. I can tell you something. You'll never love other people if you don't believe you're loved. And you know why? It's because your need to feel loved will be so overpowering and so great that you won't have the capacity to give anything away because you're just like a love hoarder. All right? And this means you will go from friendship to friendship, from person to person, from church to church, marriage to marriage even, looking to have that hole filled in you of love and you won't have anything to give anybody else. But friends, I'm telling you, when the love of Jesus fills your heart, when you're able to stand here with us and sing it and know it, that it's true. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. When that echoes deep in your heart and you know it and the first thing you know about God is that he loves you, it means that you, it detaches you from the need to always get love from other people. It's still great to get love from other people, but if they don't give it, as it turns out, you're okay. And this lets you open up your life to love other people. Last week, we've talked about justice. Today, we're talking about sanctity of life. And I hope that we're a church that mobilizes in service and activism. But we will never do that if we don't believe we're loved. It's only a loved people who have the capacity to love. It's only a people who know that they're loved, who have the capacity to keep loving people who don't believe it for themselves, right? And are like, bottomless, love-sucking holes, right? Come on, you all have people like this in your life. You know what I'm talking about. How do you keep loving people like that? 
The only way you do it is you know in the core of your being that you are loved by a God, that he'll never love you more and, or any less than he does in this moment because he just loves you. It's just on my heart this morning. This is appropriate for Sanctity of Life Sunday. I just wonder if there's someone here who you've been having ringing thoughts in your head that the right thing to do is to take your own life because it feels hopeless, because it feels like now is the time to give up. I just want to stand in front of you and tell you that's a lie. I want to tell you that God loves you. It may feel hopeless, but there is hope. Friend, talk to someone. Talk to someone. I know it may feel like you're alone, but I promise you there are people who will sit next to you, stand next to you, cry with you, and tell you a hundred times if they have to that you are loved. But do not give up on this thing called life. It's too sacred. It's too holy. It's too precious. And God wants to do something through you. So first of all, let God affirm the value of your life. Secondly, then, look at yourself first. Identify where you don't value life and repent. You know, it's easy to point out the ways that people who don't follow God disregard human life. This is what Israel would have been doing. They would have been saying, how wretched that these nations would commit these crimes. At least we don't do that, right? But God won't let his people off the hook. He, he instead says, it's time for you to examine the way that you have disregarded human life. Because you see, maybe you haven't disregarded human life by, by committing war crimes, but you have disregarded human life by ignoring the poor in your midst. And when you ignore them, when you take away their value, you are disregarding human life too. And God won't let them off the hook. He doesn't give a hierarchy to these sins. It's very easy for us to look at the way that people who don't believe in Jesus disregard life. But I think the starting point is to look in ourselves and say, do I have attitudes of apathy towards the poor or the hurting? Or this, do I gossip about people? Because gossip has at its heart the devaluing of someone, typically so that you can get another person to value you more. And you see, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's disregarding human life. It's trying to paint someone in, a, in, in colors so that it seems like they are less than you when in fact they're not. See, of all the things that it means to be created in the image of God, I've shared this before, but here's a big one, that we are inherently responsible for one another in the way that the rest of the creation isn't. If a cow walks by another cow in the ditch, you know, it's not morally responsible to help, right? But what it means to be created in the image of God is that if I walk by another human in the ditch, I am morally responsible to help. And you see, if I don't, not only am I devaluing the image of God in that person, but I am in me too, because I'm acting less than human. See, what it means to be human is that we are responsible for one another always, and even to our enemies. It means that we value even the lives of our enemies. I think the world on this issue is tired of a church where it seems like they're, they're suspicious that the church values life only for certain groups of people or only when it benefits us. And I think we have to be ready to say, we value the lives of even our enemies. We'll protect even our enemies. We value life so greatly. 
because we just believe that life is valuable. Which brings me to my next point. Insist on being for all life. Our culture tells us that you can't be for all life. If you don't believe me, just listen to the things politicians argue about. Listen to our elections. You have to be for the mother or for the baby, for the rich or for the poor, for prisoners or for victims, for natural-born citizens or immigrants. And we're often told that we have to pick between these groups of people. But I'm telling you, Amos proves it here. God is just concerned about life, period. He values all life. And I, I think God is raising up a church that can boldly say, we are for all life. Now, just a little political thought here. I think voting is good. I think, you know, we, we experience a privilege that very many people in history and throughout the world even still don't experience. And so I think we should vote when we're given that opportunity. And of course, you've only been given one vote, which means that when you go in to vote, you're voting for only one person. I want to tell you this. I think I can say this. I think you should vote life every time. I think every time you shouldn't vote out of self-interest. You should vote for life, particularly when vulnerable life is involved. But here's the thing. Our politicians often, unlike God, don't value all of life. They value a portion of life while they ignore other parts of life. And so this means that very likely you're going to end up voting for somebody who values some vulnerable life but not all vulnerable life. Well, what are you going to do? You only have one vote. So vote for whoever you need to vote for. Be gracious to people who voted differently for you, than you, especially if they were voting for life too, but reach different conclusions. And then be ready to be the voice to stand up against the politician that you just voted for when they disregard another portion of human life. See, I think this is what it means to be a prophetic voice in our culture. You gotta vote you got to pick someone, you know, when you're in there. But I want to be, det- I want my loyalty to be to Jesus in such a way. I can say, look, my God, he values life, even the lives of Israel's enemies. And so this means that wherever life gets stepped on, wherever it gets trampled, even if I voted for you, I'm not so in love with you, Mr. Congressman, Mr. President, that I'm not going to be willing to say, this is wrong, you've gone too far, and we're going to stand up and protect human life. Amen? Amen. But then my next point, especially stand up for vulnerable life. See, standing up for a particular group of people who are vulnerable and suffering, that is God-honoring, and it doesn't mean that you aren't for all life. See, I I know this church well enough to know I hear your heart passions. Just even as I look across the congregation, I can see where God has drawn certain people to certain vulnerable populations. There's some of you, it is the unborn and their mothers, And listen, if someone says to you, you know, I'm just really for life for the unborn, you don't respond to that by saying, well, you should also be for life for all these other groups, you know, too, because you need to be for all life, right? Um, If someone says, you know, I'm really for the young, you know, and I want to make sure that, you know, their, their development is flourishing and all that. I feel like that's what God has called me to. You don't respond to that by saying, well, that's bigoted because you really should be for the old, too. Right? 
especially when you can hear someone's heart, they're just concerned about a particular group of people. And in our church, we have people who've been drawn towards the unborn and their mothers. We have people who've been drawn to issues of immigration, to issues of of poverty overseas, to racial divisions, all this. Wherever God has drawn you to a vulnerable population, you should recognize that compassion is coming from God. And look, when people in those vulnerable populations stand up for themselves and speak up, we ought to listen, not accuse them of not being for all life. All right? And because we end up writing off the concerns of whole groups of people. And so I think God does call us to this. God calls people to be for, in special ways, the unborn, the poor, immigrants, ethnic and racial minorities for prisons and prisoners. And I think we ought to support all of these people that God has called to these vulnerable populations. And lastly, I just want to say this as I close. Look for creative ways to participate in the kingdom of God as it affirms all life. We've been talking about the kingdom for years now at Crestmont. As the rule of God comes in, one thing you will find as the kingdom invades a country or a church or a community, as the kingdom invades, you will find that this kingdom is life-affirming in many, many times in more creative ways than we can even think. So let me tell you a story. From the time I was young, God put it in my heart, just as I close, I'll show this. God put it in my heart to be an activist. And I am that by nature. I just like to do things, mobilize people. And God gave me a heart for justice, among other things, young. Um, and as I remember being like in fifth grade, and I became familiar with the issues that were surrounding abortion. And it's just, it's just how God has made me. I just want to do something as soon as I hear something about these issues. So as, as a fifth grader, I organized my class to protest an abortion clinic. So I'm like in, I'm like, I don't know, 10, 11 years old. Get this, I wrote out bylaws for our little group. <laughs> I was like, we're, I found a ride, you know, I can't drive. It's like, we're going, you know, to this clinic. And so we went to this clinic and we held our signs and sang our songs. And listen, I said it last week, Amos really is a prophet in the sense that he's a protester. Um, He's agitating people towards repentance. We often want people to protest as long as it doesn't agitate us, right? But that's not not what protesters or what prophets do. They're, They're trying to be abrasive so that they get you to think about things differently. And I think increasingly we have very little understanding of that as Christians in, in, in modern-day America. But um, I think there's a time and a place for protest. I do. And I'm, I'm not saying that what I did was wrong, but I remember pretty much right away as I was standing there, because on that morning, there were people walking in and out of the clinic, and I just remembered thinking, like, is this it? Is this what it looks like to stand up, you know, for a vulnerable population? That memory just stuck in my head for a long time. And I shared this story maybe over a year ago, but over a year ago, I felt like God did something really redemptive for me with this issue. We were in Belle Glade, Florida, and we were holding a VBS. It's like two years ago in this public housing development. And we're serving the kids of these migrant workers, you know, um, African-American, Caribbean Islander, Latino, and very poor, forgotten by society in many ways. 
um, producing food so that we can still have our vegetables in the winter and just all of the injustice that surrounds that issue. By the way, pray for me. I'm going to Belglade this next week, uh, this week with a couple of people. I'll be there just for a few days so you can keep me in your prayers. But we're running this VBS in this public housing community and just seeing the kingdom of God affirm these kids. And, and it was so hot. Belglade is basically built on a swamp. So the bugs are terrible. I mean, we're just getting totally bit up. It's hot. And there was a community center there. You've heard me show this story before, some of you, but they invited us in to hold the VBS inside of this community center. And as soon as we went in, the most prominent thing on the wall was a banner that was advertising and promoting an organization that has not only been at the front of promoting abortion in the United States, but if you look at the history of the organization, very often, especially in their far history, they have targeted ethnic and racial minorities for sterilization and abortion. It's a terrible injustice that few people want to talk about. And this is what's being promoted, you know, in in the community center, and I just became aware as we went in that the workers who had invited us in were some of the people who were connecting people to this service. So it's not like we were holding this VBS in an abortion clinic, but it's like as close as you could be holding a VBS in an abortion clinic. And what an odd thing, but guys, I have found that this is what the kingdom of God is like. If you insist on being for all life and you insist on being loving, the kingdom will open up opportunities for us that the news can't fathom, that a divided culture can't imagine. And so for a few days, listen, I'm not exaggerating the story. I know we didn't like fix the issue or change anything systemically, but I'm just saying for a few days, the kingdom of God broke into this community center. And, and, here's, and here's what I saw happening as I like reflected on that afterwards. God was just affirming everyone. He was affirming the children, poor and left behind, who were coming in. In some strange way, he was even affirming those workers as we, as we accepted their invitation to hospitality and as they supported us and saw what we were doing to affirm these kids. I believe it was the display of the love of God to them. And God affirmed us as well. So listen, I'm not saying that there's not a time for the protest, but I'm saying what if we let the kingdom be the driver of our imaginations when it came to seeing change? Never in a million years did I think we'd be holding a VBS for vulnerable kids there. But there we were. See, our news can't fathom that. Our politicians can't fathom it. But I'm just telling you, the best thing we have is love. And when we let the Lord open up those gates of love in the most difficult places in the world, we see him affirm people and it is his kindness that leads to repentance, right? It is his love, the affirmation of his love that changes people's hearts.